4: Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Community Breakfast on Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday, the thirtieth of November, and it's just hit seven a.m. You're joined here by me, Genevieve. I've got Evie, and then in the other studio, Fong and Carnegie. How is everyone? Pretty good. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, are the others there? Carnegie, Fong. Hello, yeah. can hello. You hear us? Yes. <laughs> yeah, coming through loud and clear. <laughs> Great. Um, beautiful weather. Nice and balmy. Summer. Summer. Yeah. I'm like
5: waiting for it to change though. I know it will. <laughs> Any La,
4: La Niña has really kept everyone on guard, I think. Yeah. This summer. Um did everyone anyone do anything nice this weekend? Anything to take advantage of the sun? Um no, but I did go dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I went dancing for the first
5: time in, like, I feel like two years. Wow. What that. was that like? It was incredible. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, we stayed out far longer than we should have because we were like, what is this? Mm. I feel this like, is amazing. Yeah.
4: This weekend, there was a lot of those mm. kind of nights. Yeah. I went to my first, like, music event in, like, ages. I went to – I actually was in Footscray at the Community Arts Centre with the flow event that was going on oh, yeah. how was it it was great yeah the lineup was really nice beautiful day lots of dancing I was like exhausted I, like they <laughs> finished at like nine thirty, and I feel like I just my back was just like completely <laughs> ruined it was really fun
0: we need to get back into fitness just for going out. Oh, my God. I know, like, standing on my feet for longer than, like, an hour. I haven't been back to circuit yet, but I'll give it, like, maybe, like, another week before I
4: brave yeah. the dance floor. Yeah. yeah. It's just nice. I mean, so many people close together. and
0: I know. Yeah. It's just, like, I, I sometimes I walk down High Street um, in Thornbury and Northcote and just, off of, like, even off a weeknight, just seeing people out and about and having dinner and just, Mm -hmm. you know, just cafes and restaurants and everything being full. I'm still very – I'm still very – a bit of a heart on my sleeve about it. I still like seeing that a
4: lot. Definitely. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I should probably – anyone that's curious it is going to be a top of 30 degrees today bottom of 15 sunny 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 so if you can skip out maybe for even a few minutes if you're working from home or in the office or a uh, uh, hospital or wherever you are to get some sun, definitely take advantage because I think the next couple days after this are going to be a bit rainy but hot. Um, but as per usual, we have a jam-packed show coming up. Uh, Fong,
2: Yes. Yesterday I spoke with Professor Sarah Charlesworth from RMIT and we spoke about uh, gender-based violence in the workplace. So um, this is part of uh, – these series of interviews that that we're showcasing today. Um, it's part of the 16 days of activism. Um, uh, as yes, uh, yesterday? No, last week. 25th. The 25th, yeah, was the International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So, um, and following on from my interview,
5: yeah, um, I'll be, I spoke with um, Professor Lisa French earlier in the week about. Um, the importance of depicting some of these stories on screen. And we talk about the TV show Made, which, um, yeah, people are really watching at the moment. And it's quite unique in kind of highlighting these issues for women.
0: And I'm going to be speaking with Sam Floriani, friend of the show, who's spoken to us before. Um, she will be chatting to us about um, Scott Morrison's announcing proposed new legislation aimed at making online trolls accountable for their actions. Uh, this may seem like, you know, good in theory, but unfortunately, it seems to be leading to a lot of de-anonymizing of the Internet. So it's quite uh, interesting and quite complicated um, uh, potential uh, results. So we'll be chatting to Sam about that.
2: And then just before the end of the show today, I'll be replaying a um, a short conversation that I had with some grade three and four students from Collingwood College. Uh, towards the end of lockdown, I spoke with a number of them about just about their life, <laughs> their experiences of lockdown, um, what they were looking forward to post lockdown, and um, yeah, it was it was a really cute conversation. So that will be um, a short interview just to finish up the show today.
4: Easy. All right, we'll be right back after
2: this quick announcement with the news.
4: off the national weekend of action against AUKUS, get down to the State Library on Friday the 10th of December for International Human Rights Day, calling for human rights and not another military pact.
6: The AUKUS pact seeks to tie Australia into a forever partnership with the US and UK, involving military, education, resource extraction, technology development, manufacturing. War is the antithesis of human rights, wreaking environmental destruction that not only endangers First Nations communities on the front lines, but generations of our children to come.
4: Come and take back the streets with music, performance and speeches with MC Tom Ballard, Scott Ludlam, Liz Turner, 3CR's Jacob Greck, Combat Wombat and the Solidarity Sound System. Join us on Friday, December 10th at the State Library at 5.15pm and visit renegadeactivist.org for more information.
1: A 3CR
6: supporter. Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community, so get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash VaxProof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.
1: A 3CR supporter.
6: This is 3CR. You're
4: back on Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR. We're going to jump into some news and, I mean, should we start off with the elephant in the room? The uh, Omicron strain, which seems to have taken over the news the last few days. Um, Yeah, any thoughts? Any intakes?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really wish um, that there wasn't so much of, like, panicking about like necessarily the effect on Australia in terms of, you know, people being infected because Mm -hmm. at the moment so far at least it looks like it won't have a huge impact on people who are already vaccinated. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest problem is that, you know, we haven't been helping out other countries or, you know, Australia, the US, the UK, we haven't been helping out, you know, developing countries and countries without, you know, equitable access to vaccines. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be impacted much, much more by this new strain. Um, And I mean, the only solution is really just to keep on distributing those vaccines rather than like, you know, constantly. You know, boosters are important, but it needs to be, like, a dual approach.
5: Yeah, I just – I don't understand why even now, like, two years into the pandemic, we think it's not going to get us if it's in another country. Like, we're not (laughs) – the virus is going to spread. Yeah, Like, like, this is not a time to be like, oh, should we share our vaccine? Yeah, I
0: know. It's like – and, like, you can sort of – you can draw a line – um, with this new variant, um, directly to um, vaccine patents not being available in places like South Africa, and so that, like you know, if we're not distributing vaccines to them properly, but they also can't make their own, yeah. um, and so it just means like a just a astonishingly low percentage of the population is not vaccinated, and therefore will you know suffer as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, of course, like, most of the news is like, oh no, this new strain is in Australia. And it's like,
4: mm, that's not really like the huge problem at hand. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you nailed uh, nailed that with, I guess, everyone freaking out because there's been two cases that have been found in New South Wales. It's probably yeah, it's might already have exa- here. executed, uh, I mean, accelerated by this point. And they've, I think it's something that they've blocked eight African countries um, there yeah. from. Uh, coming back to Australia and even blocked planes that were supposed to be arriving um, when the news broke out of the Omicron uh, virus. So, I mean, just like this level of control and especially, I mean, like, as you said, the virus is going to mutate. And it's kind of going on the trajectory that they uh, predicted where it gets um, easily more easily transmittable but less, less deadly. Less yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, like, I mean, yeah, that's the best case scenario for us in a country like, you know, that is fully vaccinated. So, but yeah, like Scott Morrison and like the federal cabinet are already sort of meeting to decide what the decisions are going to be for over Christmas and, you know, locking down international borders. Uh, at the moment in New South Wales and Victoria, I think there's a, there is this, a, a brief quarantine period for new arrivals back again. Um, I guess it remains to be seen, you know, what happens with, like, further
4: restrictions. (sighs) And I think I'm just reading here, the Prime Minister of uh, South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has obviously been quite uh, firm with his calling on countries to immediately and urgently lift travel bans uh, for the sake of, um, I guess, the South African economy and the livelihoods of millions of people that reside in the country. Um, but yeah, we'll see.
2: <laughs> um, in other news, in New South Wales, there have been nearly 5,000 requests for assistance from badly damaged, flood-stricken areas. Major flood flood warnings were issued for the Lachlan River at Jemalong and the Namoi at Naribri and Weewa for Saturday evening, with fears that flooding could cut residents off for more than a week. The Bureau is also watching Conamble, where major flooding is possible along the Castlereagh River, which has risen significantly on Sunday morning. It is expected to exceed moderate flood levels around um, midday Sunday and could reach major major flood level um, by evening, so yeah, just thinking thinking about the folks in New South Wales at the moment. Mm. Um and
4: just lastly, uh breaking news uh this morning, I believe. Uh the pioneer pioneering indigenous actor David Galpalil or also commonly known as David Dalathngu, AM has died aged sixty-eight. Uh he was from the Mundhalpongu clan of the Yongu people and was raised in Arnhem land Um He was obviously in many films dating back right to the 70s, um, including, uh, sorry, (laughs) I'm just getting the list up now. Um, Doesn't matter. Um, So his final film was 50 years after his breakthrough on screen. So he had a 50 year acting career, which is incredible. Uh, He was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. Uh, cancer and emphysema in 2017 and has been battling it for uh, quite a while. But um, today, a lot of people are celebrating his life and his career, his incredible breadth of work um, as an actor, artist, painter as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just incredible to see. Unfortunately, obviously lost a little bit too young, but... Um, yeah, just yeah. a
0: remarkable career. Uh, I-, I was just like reading about like some of the... Um you know, the, the the kind of work that he was doing, even like, you know, at the lower points in his life, he basically, um, you know, he was encouraged by his peers, um, to, you know, to work through projects that sort of motivated him, um, even when he was in prison as well. Um, and, you know, continuing on his career in this way. Um,
4: just, yeah, just really awful loss for Australia. Yeah. And also just, you know, building a bridge uh, that seemed pretty impossible considering, I guess, systematic racism in Australia between, you know, his um, unapologetically, um, like, love for his land and culture Mm. um, and also taking that to the world stage where, you know, he owned it and was able to celebrate it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think, like, I know it's really corny to only, like, to think of this as, like, um, such a pivotal moment, but, uh, the funniest, um, thing I just like was thinking about, cause I'd only just watched it again recently, just while I was watching lockdown movies, we watched Crocodile Dundee. Oh again. yeah. That's, I was trying to, <laughs> sorry,
4: when I had my mind blank, I was like, that movie. <laughs> yeah. There's a really good joke.
0: Um, when he's talking to, um, the journalist um, mm. sue um, she like she he told her like he, that he that she couldn't take his photograph and she's like why is there like some sort of custom that I can't take it and he's like no you've got the lens
4: cap on oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good joke <laughs> oh that's lovely um, all right well we might go into some announcements we'll be back uh, after this have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword
1: a 3cr supporter
2: welcome back to 3cr 855 am um so Professor Sarah Charlesworth is the Director of RMIT Centre for People, Organisation and Work, as well as Professor of Gender, Work and Regulation in the School of Management. And yesterday we had a discussion about gender-based violence in the workplace. Just a content warning though, the following interview mentioned sexual harassment and abuse. If this content makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to join us again in 11 minutes. Here's Sarah Charlesworth as she describes her area of work.
1: My area of work over many years has been uh, researching gender inequality in employment. In all its manifestations. And perhaps one of the most important is in the area of um, gendered violence, particularly um, which is violence, harassment, abuse, sexual harassment that's directed uh, towards women in the main.
2: Have there been any trends uh, since the pandemic has started with regards to gendered violence in the workplace?
1: Well, I think we've seen it and even just last week in the media, both the um, relevant union and also the Employers Association um, raised uh, extreme concern about the um, violence and harassment being directed towards uh, shop assistants and uh, they're overwhelmingly um, female, particularly those who are in that direct face-to-face interaction and they were having uh, abuse heaped on them, um, a, a abuse from many quarters, abuse from um, uh, asking people to check in with the QR codes. Um, earlier there was that famous, well, I think last year, that famous incident with um, someone going into a bunning store and abusing the young woman who insisted this person put on um, a, a mask, which mm-hmm. is which is required uh, inside lots of retail stores, so that often there can be triggering events towards abuse. But I think the issue is that we shouldn't just see this as a product of COVID. Um, People, particularly younger and indeed older women in these frontline positions, be they in retail or in um, aged care work, both home care and uh, residential aged care, in which I do a lot of work, often have to cop um, abuse, uh, sometimes harassment, sexual harassment from um, the people for whom they're providing care and on occasions from family members. It tends to be fairly um, unrecognised. So if I think about home care work, for example, and I recently completed a project with my colleague, Fiona McDonald last year which was doing a bit of a scoping review for Worksafe Victoria, who now one of the only jurisdictions in Australia, the only health and safety jurisdictions that has taken a specific interest in um, gender-based violence. They mainly focus on sexual harassment, but our project was looking at other forms of um, gendered violence that, uh, that occurs. Women working alone in somebody's private home can be particularly vulnerable. Mm. Uh, We've got lots of migrant women working in um, aged care and they can often cop uh, sexualised and racialised abuse and that could be coming from the client or it can also unfortunately be coming from the client's family. So there's a wide range of... um, Abuse that people um, experience what we do know is very few um, and we know this generally from the large piece of work that was undertaken by the sex discrimination commissioner extremely few people will ever report um, violence and harassment and uh, we're now entering or in the middle of the of the week that recognizes um, violence and harassment in uh, particularly in the world of work and I think it would be very important Um, There was a new convention that was adopted by the International Labour Organization in um, uh, just a couple of years ago in 2019 which is the very first convention on violence and harassment in the world of work which sets out um, that member states and Australia's a member state, but it's still yet to ratify that convention, have to take action to not only um, deal with this violence and harassment where it occurs, but actually take action to prevent it happening in the first place.
2: Mm -hmm. Is there enough awareness around workers' rights? Like, do these women know what entitlements they have, where they should go if they are facing abuse, do employees make it clear that they do have a right to a safe workplace, or is it relatively unknown?
1: I don't think it's known as clearly as that. People understand, and it's interesting. I think in Australia, and um, uh, Paula McDonald, who's at um, Queensland University Technology, and I, we, we had, a, as I said, this large project around sexual harassment. And what was striking was what, when you we speak to women who've been sexually harassed about this and and some men they'll say hey I didn't believe it was happening um it made me feel uncomfortable I wasn't sure what it was and it's usually after some time and I think we've seen this absolutely through the um me too movement that we've been experiencing through the last uh certainly through the last year in Australia is a realization that behaviour we thought was a bit off is actually sexual harassment or, in some cases, sexual assault. We've been very reluctant to give that name to it. Um, So I think it's hard when people can't even name exactly what it is that's happened to them. Mm -hmm. Um, They know they feel humiliated, you know, offended, intimidated, but taking the step to say well that sexual harassment can be very hard for people um, and one of the interesting things in the surveys conducted by the um, sex discrimination commissioner is over the years they've asked a question they read out the legal definition of sexual harassment and say to people have you ever been sexually harassed and then to everybody they say and have you experienced these behaviors? And regularly around 20% of people who say, no, I haven't been sexually harassed, then go on to describe behaviour that they've Mm. experienced that is sexual harassment. So it's actually learning to recognise what sexual harassment is, which then I think gives people um, the possibility then of saying, well, that's wrong, that shouldn't happen to me, Mm. and I need to know my... um, rights in this area but a lot for a lot of people it's a huge step then to complain to your line manager particularly if it's your line manager who's harassing you and it's an even bigger step to go outside to um, uh, an agency like a human rights commission for example and lodge a formal complaint so often people think and what we see with and the stories particularly of women both younger and older women is that they simply move on from their jobs they tend to vote with their feet so if it gets too uncomfortable where they are they will leave that organization mm. um, which is huge loss in talent it's a huge loss in opportunity for those particular women who actually are forced to leave their workplace so we need far more general education about what sexual harassment is, and it, and it is that um, broad spectrum of um, abuse and denigration. It's not only uh, sexual assault.
2: If there are people out there listening, and particularly women who are perhaps facing some sort of abuse at work or they know of someone who is in that situation, are there any resources available available to them, so that they can get some support,
1: um, in individually with their own issues. With um, they can, of course, contact the uh, if they're in Victoria, the, um, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. They have an inquiry line. Um, A particularly terrific organization is the very long-standing job watch which you probably know about Mm -hmm. Um, so it's um, an employment rights service but they're um, the people who answer the phones when people ring up with a query you know this happened to me Um, I'm not sure what it is do you think it's sexual harassment you can get some advice you can be told what your options are Sometimes for people, not everybody wants to take action, but what a lot of people want to know is that that's not right, this shouldn't happen to me, and they also want to know if they wanted to do something, what their options are.
4: Mm-hmm. So
1: is this something to, and it depends on their workplace, but is this something that you would raise as a worker health and safety incident? Is this something that you would... um you know, the, the way that you're treated at work does this become an industrial issue, so I don't want to get very technical, but under the Fair Work Act, if you um, are treated poorly because of um, or through, say, sexual harassment and somehow you're you're punished for taking action or you suffer what they call under the Act, you know, uh, adverse action, then there are various legal industrial routes you can take but really what we know from all the research what people want is a number of things Mm. the behavior to stop they they want it recognized that this was wrong that it shouldn't have happened and they want something to be done and the best organizations are the ones that start off and this has been the strong message of the me too movement in australia believing women, starting that, you know, women don't wake up one morning and say to themselves, oh, I know what, I'm going to say I've been sexually harassed. People will raise this at their workplace where it occurs. So they need to be believed and they need to be asked what they would like to be done about it. As I said, for some people it's enough to hear that this is wrong and it shouldn't have happened. Some people want action taken, not everyone.
2: That was Professor Sarah Charlesworth speaking about the prevalence of gender based violence in the workplace. If this conversation has affected you in any way, uh, you can contact 1 800 RESPECT. And if you would like to know more about JobWatch, which was the organisation that Sarah was mentioning just before, you can go to JobWatch, that's J O B W A T C H.org.au. Um, next up, we're going to play Courtney Barnett's
5: new song from her um, brand-new album. It's called If I Don't Hear From You Tonight.
7: I'm gonna die Eventually it's fine Just like a lonely satellite Drifting for a little while If I don't hear from you tonight If I don't hear from you tonight And it's so
1: Lisa, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. This is 3CR.
5: Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, next up, we have an interview with Professor Lisa French from... RMIT. So the 25th of November was the International Day of Elimination of Violence Against Women, and it also marked the start of 16 days of activism. Um, I spoke with Professor Lisa French, who is the Dean of RMIT School of Media and Communication, about why it's important for women to tell stories on the screen, on TV, in film, and particularly about the new Netflix miniseries, Made, which delves into family violence and um, So if you haven't watched the show and you want to avoid spoilers, come back in about 20 minutes. And just a content warning as well. Please be aware that this conversation is about family violence. And if this type of content is a trigger for you, um, you can either skip the interview or um, we will um, give you some numbers to call after.
8: Life she's going to, you know, and and she struggles. Um, So about life she's going to. You know,
5: and can you please start by maybe telling us a little bit about your background in teaching film and media? Sure. Oh hi, I'm
8: Lisa French. I'm the Dean of the School of Media and Communication at RMIT and I'm a cinema studies scholar. So I've written a few books on women in film and television and I, I'm on the Screen Australia Gender Matters Task Force, which is committed to ensuring the greater participation of women in the film and television industries. And I also have a role for UNESCO, uh, leading a 19 global research network on media and gender and ICTs.
5: Oh, that's incredible. Um so recently Netflix has put out a drama called Maid, which is about a woman navigating an unsafe relationship with a three-year-old child. Um, and it's recently put a spotlight on gender-based, gender-based violence and inequality. So that show is based in America, but according to our watch in Australia, on average, one woman a week is murdered by a current or former partner. And one in three women has experienced physical violence since the age of 15 do you think that shows like made sort of help people understand women's experiences of family violence
8: I do and I think um, given it's uh, there's a ten day window or actually I think it's sixteen days of activism declared by the UN for the International Day for the elimination of violence against women it is important time to put a fo- focus or a spotlight on this and the show made uh it it's quite um it 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 shows you like what the uh uh emotional abuse is like and so the the character uh you you go on her journey with her, so it's based on a memoir uh by a woman called um oh what was her name uh Stephanie Land. And it, it, it's so it's based in her real life experience, and I've, I gather from um, audience commentary that people, whoever they like, a big cross section of people are really warm to this show. They really uh, go with the journey. So it's a credit to the production itself, and I think the lead um, actress she's she does a fantastic job, um, Margaret Qualley, uh, in in. Getting us to see what it's like. Like she gets up, you know, in the, very early in the story. And it's pretty hard going in the beginning, but she just leaves one night after her partner um, actually hits her. Um, but later in the in the series, we kind of get to see what what it feels like to be emotionally abused and how hard it is to extract yourself uh from that and you know how oppressive it really is and so that you know there's other stories of other women as well and um often these women um become homeless because of you know if they try and get out from under the coercive control and so they go back to the people that are abusing them so that was a kind of long answer but i yeah it's um i i think it does really Uh, these stories especially from female perspectives give us a real insight into female experience
5: Mm. and you know I thought that May did a really good job of showing the sort of nuances of family violence um you know like you pointed out there's a lot of focus on emotional abuse uh, psychological abuse there's also you can see sort of her struggle with poverty intergenerational trauma um, and, of course, capitalism. Can you talk about, you know, a little bit of why it's important to understand these stories in a nuanced way? Um, yeah, well, um, it,
8: it, important to understand in a nuanced way. Well, I, I guess it's because it's really complex. It's not, uh, you know, you, you can understand kind of rationally that, you know people women who are abused or anyone that is abused they suffer trauma but I think the way in which it manifests is not always like it's not necessary that you get punched for you to be abused so there's sort of the very um, complex way it plays out uh, in this particular show is something that I think open up opens it up for for a greater understanding and I think you 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 get a lot of empathy for the main character who she kind of does some silly things along the way but you know she just never seems to get a break it's really everything's so difficult and just you know she she hasn't got money for food she's got nowhere to live you know those those things but also um how her own personal uh how her physique changes how her emotion changes and how she actually then starts to sink kind of she gets into this quicksand that makes it even more difficult for her to get out of
5: yeah and you know it really shows that there she has a social worker as well and you know she has a mum and a dad who she doesn't have very good relationships with. So all the kind of support structures are failing her as well. That's right. And often
8: um, there aren't real support structures because uh, women who are abused are often isolated and it's, it's one of the, the parts of of control that, that they end up not having any friends. Their friends are driven away, their family's driven away and they've got no one to turn to.
5: Yeah, and they show that really well as well. And like you said, you really go with her on the journey. And I love the way that, you know, the show, uh, when she's in court, for example, they show us what she hears, which is just legal jargon. She can't hear what they're actually saying or when the social worker kind of gives her a huge stack of papers. Yes, that scene is really
8: great, I think, because um He's saying something legalese, but all she hears is blah blah blah, or or something like. So it's you know she might as well be listening in a foreign language because it, it it makes no sense to her. And you really do get the sense of how a person like her who arrives at the court, and I think she sort of has got faith in justice, and she thinks she'll just tell her story and they'll understand. And then she realizes something that she she can't access and understand and she's just i guess she's one of the lucky ones because you know she does get some help in the end and and that lifts her up and um she she's able to change things
5: yeah and i think that speaks to resilience on her part as well um mm-hmm. go through that much adversity and you know make her way out still um in your experience Have there been many shows that tell stories like this?
8: Um, I I think that, uh, I mean, one of the values for me of this show is it's created by a lot of women. It's based on a woman's memoir about really having this experience. And so it does offer a female experience of it. And so it's an insider's view. And um, I think that's a thing... It's why you want more women to be making films on the screen and when you get a lot of films which are on a female perspective. So another one that's about to come out in the next, I think it comes on Wednesday to Netflix and is coming, um, is in the cinemas about now, is Jane Campion's film called The Power of the Dog, which is also based on a novel. And in that film... There are uh, four. It, it's a Western, and there's there's a woman who who marries someone and goes out to a farm, and it's it's kind of her story, and she's abused in that story, in that she's afraid of one of the men, and she's she kind of lives in terror of this this man but the interesting part about that film is not so much what it says about the woman because it's a story that you can recognize and that we know but what it says about the men so there's three different kinds of men there's one one very angry cowboy who really wants to embrace his feminine side but is a victim of of top, what we call toxic masculinity, which is his, you know, the masculine way of being, he feels like he has to live that but he doesn't really want to. Then there's a, a man who embraces his desire to, to have a relationship with a woman and to be... Um, to join with someone else, and he he actually is able to do that and p- find that part of himself. And then there's another man, the Cody Smith, McPhee character, who is a young man, and people laugh at him and scoff at him because he's a fe- he's, um, feminine, mm. and um. So you really get a study of a whole like how men actually suffer by how masculinity. But you know, ideas of masculinity impose on how they should be and they can't be themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a long way around because there's all there is a female character who's who's kind of suffering because she's scared of of one of the characters. But um it's the female perspective that that brings us a way of seeing the 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 world from a a different lens, and you know, and I think May does that because we really we get inside that character, and um you know, I would say for people who had suffered um domestic violence that they might have to be careful watching it and practice some self care because it might be a trigger because you really it's so hard for her she 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 is so resilient, she just gets knocked down and she picks herself up and she keeps dusting her so she picks herself up, and you know you just think, oh God, will anything." happen that will you know but she just like she's determined she's going to keep her daughter she's going to have a life she's going to you know and and she struggles uh and um it feels very real to me but I haven't been in that situation so I you know but I felt like I got insight and empathy from the journey of going to it
5: so we're just in the middle of a conversation I had with Professor Lisa French from RMIT about um, the Netflix series Made and Representation of Women's Stories on Film. Um, we'll be right back with part two of that conversation after this.
9: If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR.
6: Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash VaxProof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.
9: A 3CR
5: supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, We're just going to jump back into part two of a conversation I was having with Professor Lisa French about the TV series MADE. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point you made about the way that women depict masculinity. Um, The way they do that in MADE is also interesting with, you know, the abusive partner who
8: um,
5: you can see what she sees when he kind of tries to get it together and you know become better and you can see how she would view that as well yeah I mean he's
8: a very sad character because he's kind of he's angry and he doesn't know why he's angry and so he he takes it out on her I guess and um that's the character of scene who's played by Nick Robinson um uh but in the well I don't want to do any spoilers so i can't really say but um uh he he's not all bad you know and so i i i think that's that's kind of what jane campion says too it's it's an empathetic view that society and patriarchy and masculinity all impose on everybody in ways that we don't really want because we want as many different ways of being in the world and, and being ourselves and, and uh, you know, there's kind of societal norms that make it really, make those things really difficult, especially if you're not the norm.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that even with the character of her father, you um, it's very interesting that a, that a woman kind of it's from a woman's perspective as well because the father finds it easier to be there for the ex partner who is a man as opposed to his daughter. It's like tells kind of how men find it easier to relate to other men and be there for other men rather than women.
8: Well, I guess he's there to kind to to say that the the, the one of the problems is those other men think it's not really the man's fault Mm. you know they don't they don't think the man really has to take responsibility in in some ways and um because the father has a a similar trajectory he can't blame the son-in-law because then he would be blaming himself
5: yeah to so, yeah and
8: so and that just is really about the cycle and how it perpetuates and and that's a systemic, vicious thing, mm. which is why it doesn't go away because you know it, it's reinforced by those by the perpetrators, I guess
5: yeah, definitely. Do you think that media creators have a responsibility to tell these stories?
8: Well, I, I think when you're a creative person, the main thing is that you can tell the stories that you want to tell, that you can, you know, explore your vision and your your voice. And so from my point of view, I, I don't think anyone should be told to tell any particular story. So just because you're female, you shouldn't have to tell stories about women or any group or person shouldn't have to do that. It, you know, creativity requires a... It, requires a freedom but by the same token i do think that uh you need to let everyone have a voice and that's why you know participation equality and equity is really important in our media landscape
5: yeah and made is at the moment on track to become the most watched miniseries on netflix so it is clear that you know people are interested in hearing these stories and seeing these experiences represented on screen and it sort of validates why we need more women working in film and tv
8: well absolutely and actually netflix have had uh supersonic success with uh shows that uh, that are about strong female characters so if you take um queen's gambit and i think the handmaid's tale was on netflix too so there's a lot of shows that are really there's even a category I don't know if it's just what I watch but my Netflix comes up with you know shows about strong female characters so um you know like it's a thing and they they know that there's there's a thirst for them there there are a lot of interesting stories many of which haven't been told and and women are creating really authentic characters and that's so valuable
5: Absolutely. Have you had any feedback from students, you know, about the show at all?
8: I haven't because our students uh, go off. Uh, the show came on after the, our undergraduates finished um, and in my role as dean, I'm I'm not actually, I, I mainly deal with postgrads rather than um, undergrads. So I haven't actually had a lot of student conversations, but I did have a little skim through the uh, you know, the audience reviews, and I could see there was a, there, it was casting a very wide net. People re- uh, liked it for lots of different reasons. But I think that the thing that really got most people that I, it seemed to be a theme was the emotional uh, level. And uh, a lot of people seem to be talking about that they cried because it's quite, it's quite profound and mortifying because it's so difficult. And I think people could easily turn off in the first episode or two, but it would be their loss because actually the kind of the evolution of the story uh, is more positive, I guess, as it goes along once, you know, and you really get to like her and you're really wanting her to sort out her problems and, you know, sometimes she lets things happen that she shouldn't and then things fall apart again and, but she just gets back up again and off she goes again. So she's pretty amazing, really.
5: She really is. And, you know, it's also um, important, I think, the way that they show that she's really determined not to continue the cycle for her daughter because we can see that, you know, she went through it as a child, Um, her mum went through it. So she's, yeah, that's her main focus as well, which I think is Mm -hmm. great to break that cycle. Of sort of intergenerational abuse and trauma that's right and I, I I'm I would be sure that
8: that's one of the things that that it, it intends to leave you with so that 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 you have that thought that that you have to break the cycle
5: definitely well I hope that made sort of sets a benchmark for more shows to tell more diverse stories by women um That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning, Lisa. Great
8: being with you. Have a great day. Cheers.
5: Cheers. Bye. Bye. So that was a conversation I had with Professor Lisa French from RMIT about the importance of women telling stories on TV and film. that conversation was about family violence. If it was a trigger for you, you can contact WIRE Women's Information on one 134 130 or 1-800-RESPECT on one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two. 737 732 um, Next up, we're going to play a song by Alex the Astronaut, who is a Sydney-based singer and songwriter. Um, this is her latest single. It's called Growing Up.
10: I sat with my feet in the water And I felt the wind on my head Turned around and saw the city A grid of pain and love with no end How many shots till you're all used up How many tears till the sky? How many suns till it all lights up? And how much love is in your eyes? Is this going up? Is this
3: going up?
5: So that was Alex the astronaut with her new single Growing Up. Accent to women.
10: It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural
11: milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives.
1: Accent to women. What a border, they
9: don't see it like a big wall right along the
1: How the can country? people live
9: ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where they're two where there are armies there and
5: terrorists there? Such conflict every single day
1: of their lives. Accent of women. A
4: show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds on Community Radio Three CR.
0: Welcome back to Three CR Tuesday Breakfast. So the last 12 months have seen an unprecedented volume of legislation that allegedly claims to defend the privacy and safety of Australians online. In reality, it has a chilling effect on not only their right to remain anonymous, both for reasons of safety and a free speech, but seem to be creating a backdoor way for the federal government to further infringe on our basic freedoms. Yesterday, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Attorney General Michaela Cash announced proposed new legislation aimed at making online trolls accountable for their actions. Uh, there is an Draft to be released this week. And Sam Pluriani is a digital rights activist currently working with Digital Rights Watch who's written extensively about why digital privacy is a feminist issue and why online anonymity is good, actually. Um, she is here with us today to talk about this proposed legislation and how it can be problematic. Welcome to the show, Sam.
11: Well, Thanks very much for having me.
0: So what's um, actually, what is this proposed legislation intending to do?
11: Yeah, so as you mentioned, we're yet to see the full text of the bill. So the finer details are still, you know, a bit unknown. But essentially what they're promising is that um, what it will do is give social media platforms a defence from being liable for defamation for comments that are made on their platforms if they identify the user behind the post. So, if they don't identify the user, then the platform itself can be liable. So, essentially, it is incentivizing social media platforms to hand over details of anonymous users where there is a complaint for defamation. So, this follows um, people might remember the, the VOLA decision and the High Court recently, which um, made social media platforms and people or organizations that run, you know, like Facebook pages, for example, um, made them. Uh, able to be liable as publishers for comments made by randoms on the internet, essentially. (laughs) So this bill will will shift that um, defamation liability away from people who run those pages or organisations that run those pages and put it um, onto the platforms or if, as I said, if they hand over those identifying details, then onto the actual anonymous users.
0: Yeah. So um, you've made a good point that this legislation is specifically in response to the Dylan Boller case um, and, you know, holding companies responsible for defamatory comments posted on their pages. Um, so Scott Morrison argued that this legislation was necessary as a means to curb online trolling, but trolling and defamation aren't always the same thing. And he sort of crossed this really uh, – oddly disingenuous line in between the two um, to put the responsibility onto users for not um, making defamatory comments. Um, But uh, this seems like a really, like, you know, to put that blame back onto commenters uh, rather than platforms for publishing defamatory content, it, it seems like the cost will be so much more for the average person than someone who can afford to put forward a defamation action.
11: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's a really good point to raise this idea of like what what even is trolling? what what are we what are we talking about around this legislation? Because I think that calling it trolling actually really muddies the waters here. Like there are really important distinctions between bullying and abuse and defamation, and then even like what is genuine, valid criticism. So I think calling it an anti, anti-trolling anti bill is actually really confusing. And I think that they know that they can win some political points by calling it um, this, you know, by calling it this and, and by using this terminology of trolling because because it is a bit vague and because everyone has their own idea of what trolling means and many have their own experiences of it. And so it kind of implies that it will help everyday Australians who might suffer from defamatory or bullying or abuse online like and if you read a news headline and it says no, the government is cracking down on t- online trolling that sounds really good <laughs> <laughs> but in reality there's very little in there from what we ha- from what we know that will actually do anything to help everyday people who are being abused harassed or defamed online because as you said Defamation defamation is a rich man's lawsuit, you know. It's not something that your everyday Australian is, is going to be able to have access to.
0: Yeah, so um, over the past few weeks, like in the lead-up to this announcement um, on the weekend, uh, we've heard – Scott Morrison and supported by other ministers like um, Barnaby Joyce they he decrying trolls as cowardly and un-Australian and it's really like emotive language that seems to distract from the main point of the bill Uh, and Barnaby Joyce in particular seems uh, singularly invested in supporting these new laws but um as you said it the There's a very vague sense of what the word troll actually means, and especially from my experience um, and, you know, my time online. Sometimes it seems like, especially – um, people who are not used to having the average person respond back, they tend to conflate the word trolling as to mean just any sort of criticism, and uh, like you know, I, I guess it, if you know if there is a very vague sense of what the word troll means, uh, I I worry that it means that also like you know that's conflated. With, like, is criticism becoming defamation now, or what is the like what is the actual clarification of what that term means?
11: Yeah, I think that's an entirely reasonable concern to have. Hopefully that will become clear in the actual text of the legislation. But, you know, we have seen plenty of vague bills um, put forward very recently. So, you know, that remains to be seen, I guess. I think a a recent example that kind of gets me a little bit worried is, um, you know, recently the the e-safety commissioner Said that she was trolled online when people expressed valid concerns about the fact that she went on an anti-porn, anti-LGBTQIA podcast. Like those, that criticism was entirely valid and reasonable to, to bring up. Um, yeah, and, it's a reasonable then, fear. Yeah, exactly. And then, so to call that trolling does ring some alarm bells when we start talking about. Well, well would that be enough? Would that be enough to to for this kind of? Um, you know this ability to to identify users to be enacted, like it's yeah, it's a bit, it's pretty concerning.
0: Yeah. So, like another thing, this is sort of brought up. Um, this is a part of the sort of. Um, As federal government's intention to unmask social media users. So earlier this year, um, I think in April, um, the Australian government considered a proposal to require 100 points of ID in order to operate a social media account as a way to minimise abuse. Uh, Not only was that, like, sort of met with extreme sort of criticism and contempt from, you know, pretty much everyone involved in privacy and security. Um, it's also, But also it's just there's been multiple studies done. Anyone who's ever used Facebook could tell you that even identifying yourself um, with your full name doesn't mean that, like, you know, abuse immediately stops. A lot of the time people are quite happy to do that abuse with their full name.
11: Absolutely, I think that's a really important, like important context to put this in. We've seen this year and the past couple of years, but especially this year, the Australian government's really pushing to um, undermine anonymity or pseudonymity online. So that, yeah, that proposal to require 100 points of ID to have a social media account as an example, even you know under the online safety act in the basic online safety expectations there's also a part in that that compels uh, platforms to be able to um, prevent anonymous accounts so this is kind of yeah there's a there's sort of bigger picture stuff here happening here where the government is clearly wanting to um, push back against anonymity and I think it's really worth highlighting that anonymity is Really essential for for a healthy, thriving democracy. You know, it, it enables political speech. It enables people to um, organize and gather online. And it also is like really, really vital for a lot of people's safety and well being. You know, for all of the talk of wanting to protect marginalized or vulnerable groups, which they they love they love to talk about how this will help women and children. For all of that talk, um, it, it, they they completely overlook the fact that for a lot of people, being able to be anonymous or to be able to use pseudonyms online is, like, a really important mechanism to uphold their safety. So, you know, people who are um, victim-survivors of domestic um, violence, those who may be, you know, still exploring their queer identity or not feel safe to to come out, um, people who are activists or journalists or lawyers, like, all of these people... um, often use anonymity to be able to protect themselves online. So I think it's really uh, it's really important to remember that, you know, just getting rid of anonymity isn't gonna solve all of the the perceived, you know, challenges of, of the internet. And yeah. in fact it will probably
0: cause more problems. Yeah, like I, I think of, like, friends and, like, you know, people I know who are sex workers who need anonymity to interact safely online and with their clients and, like, you know, with service providers. They need to have that. And, you know, to to say, well, you know, removing anonymity is going to make you more safe, it's completely the opposite. It's, it's just like, you know, I'm sure they've had, you know, Volumes of community consultation with you know heaps of like all these um sort of stakeholders saying actually no it's a terrible idea.
11: Yeah, I mean it's just it gets a little bit disheartening when it just keeps coming up time and time again. I do think it's uh it's they're, they're, I get the impression that they're using it as a political uh like as, as a political win essentially. Like, I think. Looking like they're cracking down on big tech, like everyone wants big. Everyone hates big tech, right? <laughs> everyone wants to see moves being made to to deal with um, some of the challenges of of big tech and the online world. So I think that you know, this it seems it it's, it's like rolled out and seems like a win, but in reality, it's very it's very short sighted, and it's actually like quite. Um, <laughs> my uh, our director at Digital Rights Watch called it. It's reckless. It's a reckless pol- policy move um, because other countries around the world are seeing what we're doing here in Australia. We like to, you know, talk about world-leading legislation. But the trouble is, if we're leading the world in, in a bad direction, like, that's not a position that we that we want to be in. Um, at the end of the day, I feel like this, this bill is really about power and power. It's about, you know, powerful people wanting to be able to exert control um, and being like deeply uncomfortable with um, criticism that they face online, like they just kind of reeks of that, you know. Like none of these people were concerned when Yasmin Abdel Magid was was bullied and defamed a couple of years ago. They're not actually interested in protecting um, women and marginalised groups. They're interested in protecting themselves.
0: Yeah, and when you were talking about consolidating power, I think the the scariest part of um, the Online Safety Act. Uh, which was recently passed, is just giving a lot of absolute power to the e-safety commissioner. As you mentioned before, like, you know, she's already been criticised for, um, you know, appearing on anti-sex work um, and sort of uh, conservative um, outlets. Um, These these are reasonable concerns to have for someone who has – basically the power to order social media companies to remove content within 24 hours. Uh, You know, if you have one person who delegates that sort of um, power to remove content from online and, and, like, This kind of power already exists now, thanks to that act. It's already, you know, being criticized as bad legislation. So, you know, we're we're sort of doubling up on this constant sense of we want to reveal what people are posting online, especially like in the same context that we see politicians who themselves have been caught numerous times, you know, um, making comments online, harassing their constituents or talking about themselves or just making sort of disingenuous comments. Um, So it just seems so much more sinister that there there would be this sort of uh, idea that it's an uh, unknown threat or it's that, you know, individual people are the problem.
11: Yeah, absolutely, and, and and you're right. It's a fun, it is a bit of a funny double up, and it's a good thing to point out because exactly, if the Online Safety Act works as it's um, supposed to, it hasn't yet come into effect. But the kind of behaviour that we would associate with trolling should be covered by that. So this this framing this as the anti trolling legislation really is quite disingenuous. But there's also already processes in place for unmasking online accounts for defamation. People can already apply for preliminary discovery in court and request for um, details if you're, a, if you're a defamation claimant. Obviously, that's a very, like, it's a, from what I understand, quite a challenging process, but the process is already there. So there is certainly um, some double up happening here, which does point towards, you know, that sort of bigger context that I was talking about before about wanting to, to crack down on, on anonymity online
0: and and those processes are extremely expensive too to people who don't have that access. Uh one of yeah. one thing i was reading yesterday was um that the the federal government's actually considering um providing funding uh for public access to like legal services to use these services themselves. And it's like, well, maybe you should give some money to like, you know, public legal access services in in full <laughs> instead yeah. of just for these these particular things.
11: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, the one last thing that I would want to highlight was that I think that since it would be be remiss of us to ignore the fact that this this came just days after Peter Dutton successfully was able to sue an activist for a six-word tweet that was deleted. Like, there's already such a huge imbalance of power in the way that our defamation laws work in Australia, Um, and I am concerned that this would just exacerbate that imbalance
0: yeah it seems like it's only the beginning of that fight so what can people do to sort of push back against this legislation
11: oh that's a good that's a good question um, definitely keep talking about it um, I think when the time comes that we'll see like what's actually contained in the in the text of the bill I'm sure that there will be opportunities to to speak up. Hopefully we'll be able, there'll be some kind of consultation process, but it's always good to, you know, if you're concerned, get in touch with your MP, um, support organizations like us at Digital Rights Watch. Um, and yeah, just, just continue to make noise about it. I think is really, really the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I'll
0: quickly shout out as well, um, Digital Rights Watch and um, Electronic Frontiers Australia both have a lot of materials on their website for how to write um, submissions and, um, you know, to contact your MPs um, whenever you have concerns about this kind of legislation. I know that DRW does a lot of work in sort of educating people about sort of demystifying uh, the vagaries of this kind of legislation. I've always found it really useful. Um, Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it.
11: No worries. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And that was Sam Floriani talking to us about the proposed legislation um, to talk about um, removing and identifying uh, bullying content online, which actually just seems to be removing uh, constituents' privacy. So, really interesting conversation. <laughs>
9: Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space Living Cocoa ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
0: You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Just some quick shout outs um, this morning. Um, this we've also heard um, a release from the Sunday Paper, um, which is going to be launching on the Monday, uh, Monday the December the sixth of, um, and it will be launching a publication that displays the strong solidarity and co-resistances between Aboriginals, Torres Strait Islanders, and Palestinian communities in Australia. Uh, just the the understanding and the reality of living under settler colonial occupation. Um, it's going to be a paper that is in direct. Uh, resistance to um and talking about the boycott of schwartz media um it will have creative work from palestinians and uh, indigenous australians we're going to be talking to um some of the writers for the sunday paper um later on this week on
2: breakfast Uh, We're now going to play what will be the first episode of a short series of interviews that I did with some students in grades three and four from Collingwood College. I like to think of it as a snapshot in time. It was recorded uh, towards the end of lockdown this year. And yeah, I think it's just a really cute short interview um, just to get you started for the day. So here it is.
3: I'm LJ and I'm in grade four and I go to Collingwood College. Um, my name is Clem, short for Clementine. I'm in year three and I'm nine years old. Hi, I'm Fatima. I'm nine years old and I'm in grade three. My name is Amila. I'm uh, nine years old. I'm in year four and I go to Collingwood College.
2: In October, while we were still in lockdown, I spoke with some students in grades three and four from Collingwood College, which is just around the corner from the 3CR studios. Today, we'll hear from four young people as they share what's been on their mind this year. First up, they share some of their reflections from life in lockdown and talk about some of the activities they've been doing to connect with other people.
3: Um, I found it quite annoying that we had to go back in lockdown quite a few times, but after a while, we got used. I got used to it quite a bit. Well, I've been doing a lot of drawing, been jo- joining all these all my meetings, and I've been playing with my cat. I found it very, very annoying because we are in a small apartment with five people and a dog, so it's not very pleasant to be in lockdown like six months. Um, yeah. You play scribble, it's like someone draws something and At the top, there's, like, um, how much words or how much letters. And then you have to try guess what it is. And at the end, whoever has the most points wins. Like LJ said, I'm getting used to lockdown, but it might feel a little bit weird getting out of lockdown because we've been here for, like, a very, very long time.
2: Finally, the students share with me what their hopes were for life after lockdown.
3: Well, I am um I am hoping that I'm in the same classroom as my friend who I've never been in the same classroom as. She's in um a year a grade older than me, a grade higher than me, and I really want to be in the same class with her. That's been really hoping for next year. Um, I'm probably hoping that this won't happen again. Lots and lots of lockdowns. Yeah. Mm. Probably um being able to go on holidays and stuff. Or uh, just somewhere not that's not here. Um, maybe going to see my family and friends. Yeah. Or getting like. Um, Lego sets, like really cool ones. Um, I normally do it by myself, uh, or sometimes I do it with my older brother. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to next year. I'm looking forward to everyone getting vaccinated, so then we can it we can just live the normal life with no more lockdowns, no more restrictions, and just normal stuff. We should have um, a Lego little place. No, we should have we should have a party for lockdown ending. Yeah, a big party. Oh, and a new pool.
2: So I'd like to thank uh, LJ, Clem, Fatima and Amila and their teacher Emma for speaking with me in October. Um, tune in next week for another instalment with the grades three and four students from Collingwood College. All right, we're coming to the end of the show. So uh,
4: I guess going to wrap up soon actually we probably have time Evie uh to discuss or I guess to shout out the Lyndall Rowland who um previously spoke with uh 3CR Breakfast from Drilled
0: Yeah, so um, Lyndall Rowland uh, has written a lot about climate uh, change legislation and uh, what uh, people and individuals are doing to sort of push back against um, big polluters. Um, So she is now a correspondent for a podcast called Drilled, um, which has just put out an episode about Australia's plan to go big on fracking and plastic. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's a really fantastic episode and we'll keep in touch with Lyndall as she um, continues to make that. Um, podcast
4: as well. Yeah, easy. All right, just a quick wrap through uh, what was on the show this morning. Fong, do you want to start off?
2: Yeah, so we started off with an interview that I had with Professor Sarah Charlesworth from RMIT. We spoke about the violence that uh, women workers face in a number of workplaces and um, the reasons why it, it's not really reported that widely and as well as that, what women can do if they are facing harassment in the workplace. And then I spoke with
5: uh, Professor Lisa French from RMIT about family violence as depicted on TV.
0: And then I spoke to Sam Floriani talking about digital rights legislation in Australia, um, just the new um, privacy legislation
2: that has just come up this week. And then lastly, we heard from LJ, Clem, Fatima and Amila from Collingwood College as they shared with us their reflections from life in lockdown. They talked about what they were looking forward to post-lockdown, which was really cute. So tune in next Monday. Um, Yeah, I think for Monday or Tuesday breakfast, I'll be hoping to play uh, the next installment of a series of Collingwood College interviews.
4: Lovely. And I just wanted to quickly mention going off the back of an interview we did last week um, about the Sudan protest that was supposed to happen on Saturday. Um, It has been postponed and uh, just awaiting the rescheduling of that protest. So that's uh, in regards to standing in solidarity with protesters in Sudan at the moment following uh, the military takeover and now the reinstatement of uh the prime minister. Um also stay tuned to 3CR the 16 days of activism bro- broad- broadcasting is still happening so there'll be interviews um and I guess special uh program insight on uh exactly that and uh we've got accent of women coming up next as always and keep it locked to
1: 3CR 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.